Well, as Ben mentioned, this is the first Sunday of Advent and the Advent season uh, on the church calendar are the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And Advent provides us, both as individuals and as a church, the opportunity to spend more time in purposeful thought, specifically on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And part of that purposeful thought should be meditating on the implications of the incarnation. And here's what I mean by that. We must make sure that we make the proper connection between God sending us a Savior and our need for a Savior. And for centuries, God's people looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. In fact, God's people began looking for the fulfillment of God's promised Messiah on that fateful day in the Garden of Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we think back to the fall, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Well, what resulted from the fall? Or what, what were the results of the fall? Well, there was the entrance of first and foremost universal sin, which led to the second thing, which is universal death. But God in his grace promised to send one who would finally and fully deal with both uh, Satan, sin, and death. And perhaps the most familiar passage in Scripture that God's people who were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise looked to, words that provided hope and comfort and consolation literally for centuries, came from the pen of the prophet Isaiah. Familiar verses. We hear them every year at Christmas. Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this, I love this last line, the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. God did not do this reluctantly. It didn't have to be drug out of God. God with great zeal was ready and willing to accomplish, to fulfill his promise, to send the Messiah. And of course, Today, we are living in what the Bible would refer to as the last days. We are living in the church age, which means that we are blessed to live in the period of time after the Messiah has already come. We are blessed to live after the birth of Jesus. And we live in a time when much of the mystery surrounding the coming of the Messiah has been made plain and clear to us in the pages of the New Testament. So, like the Old Testament saints who, as I said in my prayer, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, we now look back to and we celebrate the incarnation of God in the flesh, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that our longing in our sense of anticipation, no longer exist. As they looked forward to the first advent of the Messiah, 
so too should we be looking forward to the second advent of the Messiah when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to claim his bride, the church. And I don't know about you, but these past several months have really helped me to understand what it means to long for something to come. You know, I'll use this, I think, because it's a, an apt illustration for this time of the year when you're a kid, you know, you, you long for Christmas to come and you have anticipation for Christmas to come and you think that it will never get there. But that sense of longing, that sense of anticipation really is minor. And I would hope that our sense of longing and anticipation for the second advent of Christ far outweighs that minor sense of anticipation and expectancy that we have had over much lesser things. These past several months, they really have helped me to understand what it means, again, to long for someone to come, for something to change, for something good to happen. Many, 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 many people have an incredible longing for the pandemic to be over, and who among us hasn't asked the question, will this ever end? We long for better times. We long for better days. And as believers, at least we have the real hope that better times are in our future, that better days do lay ahead for us. And as I think about COVID-19, and I believe if we use it properly, it can benefit us in this way. It can help us better identify and evaluate the depth of our longing for the return of Christ. Just as we long for this to be over, do we long for Christ to return? Do we give that much thought I heard a person say one time that they didn't really, weren't ready really for Christ to return because they wanted to see how life turned out. Whew. I'd be more than happy to go home today. And before the pandemic, I didn't really understand what it meant to long for things to change. For difficult days to end. Before the pandemic, I really didn't know what it meant to live with a sense of anticipation for things to change. But now, after waiting, what, eight or nine months and hoping and praying for the pandemic to come to an end, I think I better identify, not completely, surely not completely, but I perhaps just a little bit better identify with those who waited their entire lives for the Messiah to come. And do you realize that generation after generation after generation waited for the Messiah to come and only one generation lived to see the fulfillment of that promise? Every other generation died with an unfulfilled promise. It would be my prayer that God would use the longing for the pandemic to be over, longing for a vaccine to be developed to show all of us, just how weak our longing is for Jesus to return. And let's not just stop there. Let's use it to motivate us to increase our desire exponentially for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the words of John 
be ours. You know, as John prepares to close out the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we read, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And what's John's response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We would add, Come, Lord Jesus, but come quickly. Come soon. Well, we took the time this morning to read through the entirety of Matthew chapter 1, and we did so for a reason, because as we worked our way through the genealogy of Jesus and down to the end of the chapter, we read of some events which are anything but ordinary. You have to admit the events surrounding the incarnation are anything but ordinary. They've only happened once. They've never happened again. So in that sense, they, that alone makes them unique. And for instance, we read of an angel appearing to a young man named Joseph. We read of a young woman who was, had been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. We read of the angel telling this young man who's considering breaking off his engagement to her to not do any such thing. We read of a child that this young woman would give birth to and that this child was going to save his people from their sins. Now, if we would read verses 18, I think, down through 25, if we just read those verses in isolation, we'd have a hard time kind of understanding those events unless we were able to put it into some kind of context. We would have a difficult time understanding these events unless we knew the characters in the drama, if you will. So that's why Matthew starts his gospel in a rather unique way. That's the, that's, that's the reason why Matthew opens his gospel the way that he does. And really, we're just going to look at the, the first part of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 today, because Matthew begins by stating, I, I think I can put it this way, the facts of who this child is. Matthew begins by identifying the child. I went back and forth between describing this as the facts of Jesus or descriptions of Jesus. I think we could legitimately say both. These are facts that describe the Lord Jesus. You say, well, why is this important? Because then, as well as now, there have always been questions about who Jesus really is. For many people... Jesus never makes it out of the manger. For many people, all they know about Jesus is that he was born uh, supposedly in, in a stable, in a barn, and uh, he was a baby, and uh, that's pretty much it. They sing a couple Christmas carols, and they think they know everything about Jesus. Oh, they may know some things about his birth, but they absolutely know nothing about his life or his death. Then there are others for, for whom Jesus is nothing more than a teacher. For many, Jesus is nothing more than an example. He's a role model. And for many, Jesus is nothing more than a misguided martyr. And so I ask you this question, and I don't ask it in a facetious way. I want you to take this seriously. Do you really know who Jesus is? You know, the world wants to use his name as what? As a swear word. It betrays a lack of understanding of who Jesus is. 
If you knew Jesus was the God of the universe who holds your future in his hands, would you use his name as an expletive? You'd be foolish to do so. But what do we hear? What do we read? It's common parlance now. It's become part of the vernacular of our culture to take Christ's name in vain that way. So I ask you, do you know who Jesus is? You know, we even had a Christmas carol who asked this question. What child is this? The first verse begins by asking about the identity of Jesus. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? Then the chorus finally answers the question. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. The man who wrote this was a Christian. He was a believer. He, he understood who Christ was. And I wonder if you would be surprised to learn that repeatedly in the Gospels, the question is asked, who is this guy? A storm threatens to capsize a boat and drown everyone that's in it. Jesus calms the winds and the waves, and we hear the men in the boat say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Jesus forgives sins. And those seated around the dinner table say, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus has a glorious entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and the crowd wants to know who he is. In Matthew 21, and the, crowd, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? At his trial, Jesus asked about his identity. You would think if at some, by this point in his life, they would have figured out who he was. Here's a man on trial for his life. And Matthew 27 says, now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Well, thankfully, Matthew doesn't leave us wandering as to the identity of Jesus. He gets right to the point and helps us understand who Jesus is. Now, we have to understand something that we'll see here in the next two or three weeks. Matthew's gospel was written primarily for Jewish people. So that's why he begins his gospel the way that he does. He begins by identifying Jesus. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, which would have, would have made any Jew's ears perk up. And then he says the son of Abraham again. Clear reference to the father of the Jewish people. So he doesn't uh, waste any time identifying for us who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So who is Jesus? Well, notice the first thing that uh, Matthew says is that he identifies the child conceived by the Holy Spirit as Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that here in some more detail here in just a moment. Second, he identifies him as the son of David. We'll look at that next week. And third, he identifies him as the son of Abraham. Now, each point of identification is, is critically important for us to un, if we are going to understand who Jesus Christ truly is. Uh, 
And let me caution you again to not assume that you know who Jesus is, that you truly understand his identity. And the reason I say that is because Jesus made it a point to ask his original disciples if they truly understood who he was. We find that in Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now think about all of the answers that Peter could have given to Jesus when he asked that question. He could have said to him, well, you're Jesus, you're Joseph and Mary are, are your parents. But that's not what he said, is it? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Christ. Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah. Now, when you and I hear those two words today, Jesus Christ, we need to understand that they are more than just a name. In fact, they are both a name and a title. Jesus is a Hebrew name. In Hebrew, it's Joshua. In Greek, it becomes Jesus. And there is significance to the name Joshua. Joshua means the Lord or Yahweh saves or the Lord is my salvation. So right away, what do we see? We see that Matthew provides us with tremendous insight as to the identity of Jesus. He lets us know by using the name and the title that Jesus isn't average. Jesus isn't ordinary. Jesus isn't just one amongst many. Jesus is unique. There's something special about the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in the same chapter, in verse 21, Matthew records the conversation between Joseph and the angel. Now notice what the angel says about the child Mary would bear. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So let's make the connection. Jesus, Joshua, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord saves. And again, the Jewish people, if they knew something of their history and understood the significance of those names, they would understand this. They would think back to the Joshua who succeeded Moses. And what did Joshua do? He led the people of God into the physical promised land. Well, here's another Joshua, a second Joshua, and he's also coming to lead the people of God, but not into a physical promised land, but into a spiritual promised land, the land of redemption. He came to save his people from their sins. There was, not, there was not going to be anything ordinary about his birth. And there wasn't anything ordinary about his purpose and his goals in life. He came in a special way to complete a specific mission. He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus was the fulfillment of what the psalmist said in Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So in his incarnation, 
Jesus was going to deal with the root problem from which all of our pains and sorrows come. He came to save his people from their sins. Sin is our largest and our greatest problem. Jesus came to solve the problem of sin. COVID-19 is not our biggest problem. It's a pressing problem. But it is by no stretch of the imagination our biggest problem or our toughest problem. Our greatest problem is far more deadly than COVID-19. But thankfully, there's a cure for our greater problem, and that is sin. The cure for our sin has already come. And it is our responsibility to spread the news of it far and wide. It is up to us to take advantage of the cure that God has provided for us. You think about, you know, they say that perhaps that we are just uh, a couple of weeks away for a vaccine. And you know, you know the argument's going to start. Uh, some will take it, some won't take it. And I'm not here to debate the rightness or the wrongness of that. But I do see a parallel with the gospel. There's a problem that exists, and there's a cure available. But how many people say, no, I don't want it? I won't take advantage of it. And they do so to their own peril. They do so to their own doom. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. I wonder if you've ever given that, that phrase much thought. He will save his people from their sins. So you're intelligent people. So let's think this through here for just a moment. If Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then that must mean that the people Jesus descended from were what? Sinners. Sinners. So Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm sure you may or you may not know, it's not a strict genealogy. This is not everybody that was in the Lord's family line. These were picked out for a reason. These were picked out for a purpose. And part of the genealogy reveals that Jesus descended from earthly royalty. Son of David. Jesus descended from the line of David. Jesus came from a line of kings. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that some of the kings were good. They were righteous men. They were godly men in their time. But then there were others who were just absolute creeps. They were wicked. They were horrible, wicked people. Let's talk about the righteous men for a, a moment. We have listed here Men like David, Hezekiah, or Josiah. You go read about them, you find out they were pretty decent chaps. They were good kings. We'd be proud to say that, hey, I'm related to King David. Hey, did you know that uh, I'm related to Hezekiah or Josiah? They were great noble kings of Israel. But as I said, sadly, those weren't the only kings in the Lord's family tree. And just as there is in every family tree, there are those that we'd rather had fallen off the tree and weren't there. Uh, 
but in the Lord's family tree, there are some kings who were not good. They were scoundrels. They were truly wicked people. I wonder, would you be happy, to, happy and proud to claim wicked King Ahaz, who worshipped the pagan gods of the Assyrians as one of your ancestors? You say, well, how bad could he have been? Well, he was so wicked that he offered his own son as a sacrifice He was so wicked, he went to the temple and he stripped all the gold and the silver from the temple and he gave it away. Then there was another king by the name of Manasseh. He's in there. And here's what the Bible says about this guy. The scriptures say that he did more evil than the nations, the pagan nations, that the Lord drove out of the promised land. And I won't get into the people that inhabited the promised land, but they were not good people. Some of the things, the practices they engaged in, you can't say in public and decent company. They were wicked, wicked people. And here's a king of Israel, and the scripture says he was worse than the Canaanites. And he's in the family tree of the Lord Jesus. He was an idol worshiper. Manasseh was an idol worshiper. He was guilty of murdering innocent people. But that's not all that we see in his genealogy. There's uh, several women that are mentioned. And each one of them, to some degree, had a checkered past. Ruth was probably the best out of the four. Tamar, she played the role of a prostitute with her own father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute and... She was an outsider. She was a stranger to the people of God. Ruth was from Moab, and she, again, is an outsider. Though Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name, she committed adultery with David. She was married to a Hittite, and so we could probably assume she was a Hittite. She was an outsider. And about this time, maybe you're sitting there thinking, why in the world are you pointing out all these horrible things about the family tree of Jesus? Don't you know that Christmas is supposed to be a time of Joy and happiness? It's supposed to be a time of warm feelings. I thought maybe we'd have some hot cocoa and marshmallows and maybe a Hallmark movie to, you know, kind of make us feel good. Tis the season for the Hallmark movie. And here you are, you're talking about murderers and adulteresses and idolaters. People who sacrifice their children. Well, here's the point. The point is this, Jesus came from a human line with all of its warts and blemishes and sinful people. These were his people. You ever heard someone say, it's my people. These were Jesus' people. Do you see why the angel told Joseph that his name would be Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, or the Lord is our salvation? Do you see why the angel said to Joseph that he will save his people from their sins? Because he had to save them from their sins. They were sinners. Which means that Jesus came to save idolaters. 
Jesus came to save murderers. Jesus came to save adulteresses and adulterers. Jesus came to save those who abuse children. Jesus came to save those who worship false gods. Jesus came to save sinners. In other words, Jesus came to save you. Regardless of what you have done, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came on a rescue mission. If he came on a rescue mission, that means what? We need to be rescued. Now, let me make it personal. You need to be rescued. You need to be rescued from your sins. So that's why I've asked two times, and I'm going to ask for the third time, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the real identity of Jesus? He's not just some babe in a manger preserved for us to have nativity scenes in our living rooms. Do you know him as Lord and Savior? Again, do you understand he is more than a babe in a manger? Do you understand that he is more than a great teacher? Do you understand that he was far more than an example to follow, that he was far more than some role model for us to emulate, that he was far more than some misguided martyr. He wasn't a martyr at all. He was born for a reason. He lived with a purpose, and he died for a problem. The angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the question simply is this. And think long and hard about it. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? See, a lot of people will claim him as Savior, but they want nothing to do with him as Lord. Give me heaven without the restrictions. Give me heaven without the requirements. Let me do my thing. Let me go my way. I've prayed my prayer. I claim you as Savior, but not Lord. Think about the wise men. They come and they bow down to a baby in a manger. Why? 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 He was Lord. Do you know him as Lord and Savior?